Hey, it's Luke. This week on the pod, we continue our examination of pretrial disparities in Washington's criminal legal system by taking a county-by-county look at differences in access to jail diversion and other pretrial services. The disparities are, are pretty shocking. As a brief recap, in the U.S., it's supposed to be innocent until proven guilty. That's the standard. But as a routine part of our criminal legal system, we imprison people while they await trial before they're convicted, which often results in people losing their jobs, housing, access to transportation, and more. And you'll recall when the criteria for getting in or out of jail is cash bail, it often just means that the poorest folks in our community, regardless of their crime, end up staying in jail longer than folks who have the means to pay for bail. It's a problem across America. We've covered it extensively here on Range. Links in the show notes if you want to refresh your memory on those other episodes. But there's a new wrinkle that I didn't know about until I read this report by our friends at Investigate West. In Washington State, whether or not someone has access to pretrial services, which often requires home monitoring, drug testing, and other costly programs, largely depends on the jurisdiction you're in when you get arrested. Some counties have no services at all. In others, the defendant is responsible for the cost of those services. So think about this. Even if you get released on your own recognizance, which is what advocates want, they want people out, not in jail, pre-trial. If the judge orders somebody to wear an ankle monitor as a condition of that release, and the county you're arrested in doesn't pay for that, you have to pay for it yourself, those ankle monitors can run upwards of $500 a month. And so there's really no functional difference for the poorest people in our communities between being stuck in jail on an unattainable bail amount or being stuck in jail because you can't afford the ankle monitor. It's still pretrial detention by other means. And in some ways, that's actually more deceptive because on paper, it appears that you have services. But in putting the cost responsibility onto the defendant, it still excludes the folks that programs like this are designed to ostensibly help the poorest among us. So again, these are mostly county by county distinctions because of the way our court systems are set up in Washington state and also because of the way funding works. But it can get even more granular than that. In some places, it varies within the county. That's the situation in Spokane, where getting arrested in the city of Spokane gives defendants free access to many more services than people arrested for the same crime in other parts of the county, where those services still exist, but you have to pay for them on your own dime. And let's recall that due process, equal protection, these are constitutional protections. This isn't legislated by the state or by Congress. It wasn't a liberal activist Supreme Court. These are constitutional protections that are being applied unevenly, even within a single county the size of Spokane. And I bring that up because it feels like there should be a rare moment of common cause politically between a hardcore constitutionalist who lives in fear of government overreach and a progressive reformer who wants to get away from retributive forms of justice toward restorative forms of justice. Like this is one of the very few places those Venn diagrams would overlap, right? And while the conclusion sort of smacks you in the face, the reporting itself is deep and nuanced and took a ton of digging. It's really impressive work, the sort of work that actually doesn't happen enough in journalism these days, especially at a local level like ours or even a regional level. So we wanted to shout out Wilson Crescioni, the investigative reporter, and Investigate West for actually funding this work, but then also have Wilson on to help sort of guide us through all the little details and maybe what's happening or not happening at a state level 
to correct these issues. It's the first article in a series that Wilson's going to write for Investigate West called Justice by Geography. The story begins in a way you're going to be familiar with if you've listened to our other criminal legal episodes. A Washington woman named Amber Letchworth was pulled over and then arrested by a law enforcement officer who found a dirty baggie containing meth on her car floor. Amber couldn't pay for bail, so while waiting in jail for the next few weeks, she lost her home and access to her car and just was so stressed out from sitting in jail, she decided to plead guilty to a felony drug possession in an effort to get out of jail sooner. But she left jail homeless, and she was a student at WSU at the time. She lost her financial aid because of her felony record. It's worth noting that Amber had been mourning the death of her grandmother and was not in a good place. On paper, she was a good candidate for pretrial diversion, but no diversion took place, and she spiraled for a time to an even darker place. Had she been diverted to mental health or addiction treatment, her arrest might not have started her on a path to further drug and alcohol addiction, homelessness, and even more arrests. There are two bitter ironies in this case, one personal, one systemic. The drug charge that set the whole chain of events in motion has since been vacated after State v. Blake, a state Supreme Court decision last year that ruled Washington's simple possession law is unconstitutional. But the systemic kicker is that actually on paper, Asotin County is supposed to be one of the counties that actually has services. It's less clear if they had services when Amber was arrested. But in 2019, the state legislature commissioned a report to look at the pretrial landscape across state. And DeSoten was on the list as one of the counties that had the program. But it turns out that office was manned by one person who left their job and has not been replaced. And you can imagine the difficulties a rural, pretty remote county like a Soton might have replacing a position like that. Over 50% of Washington counties don't offer adequate services as of the writing of this report. And then there are counties like a Soton that appear to offer them on paper, but that's not the full story. So Wilson's piece is crucial as we examine the disproportionate effects of our criminal legal system. It's so crucial we actually republished it at range on Monday. We don't usually republish stuff, uh, but this piece was so perfectly on brand for us. It's a little infuriating that we didn't do it ourselves. And it's such a complex topic that if you haven't read it, you really should. I mean, if you just love white knuckling your way through podcasts, I'm not going to stop you. Continue listening. But I think you'll get more out of it if you pause and, and read that story at rangemedia.co. And while you're there, I'd like you to do two things for me. If you aren't already a paying subscriber and you can afford it, 10 bucks a month or 100 bucks a year, consider becoming a paying subscriber to Range. That's how we're going to make this thing sustainable in the long term. We don't believe in paywalls. We're never going to gate our content. But in order to stay independent, in order to stay focused on the stories that really matter to you, the people that listen and read this publication, we need your support if you can. Secondly, whether you are or are not, a subscribing member, when you go to Wilson's story, make sure to also click through to the Investigate West link and learn more about them, sign up for their newsletter, and consider dropping them a donation. They're a nonprofit news organization that's actually based in Washington State, which is awesome, and core members of their team actually live in Spokane, and that's a relatively new thing. So as we move forward, the hope is we're going to get more robust investigative coverage in eastern Washington than we've had which is super cool and benefits all of us. And if you do all that as a treat at the end of the interview, Wilson and I talked about nerdy journalism stuff as specifically journalism becoming sort of in aggregate, less competitive and more collaborative over time, partially due to market forces, partially due to new models and new focuses. It's not just daily paper versus daily paper anymore. There's nonprofit investigative outfits like investigate West. There's community member based journalism like range 
And there's also just this new generation of journalists that give me a ton of hope personally, who are questioning a lot of the assumptions that previous generations had. Like this job is hard enough and we all want the same thing. So when it makes sense, why don't we work together more? So yeah, it's a conversation that hits every base, just like a walk-off home run of an episode. All of that and probably stuff I'm forgetting with Wilson Crescioni of Investigate West coming up. I'm Luke Baumgarten, and this is Range. Wilson Crescioni, thanks for coming on Range, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. So I thought we could just start, you know, like all good investigative journalism, you begin your piece by framing it around a person who's sort of emblematic of the problem. And so Mm -hmm. in this case, it's Amber Letchworth. Her story just has so many pieces of the puzzle in one place, some of which our listeners are going to recognize from previous episodes we've done and some of which I think are going to be new. So yeah, maybe you could just tell us about Amber and, and why she was the sort of emblematic story to frame your piece around. You know, really with Amber, I think I could have written an entire story just about what she went through. I kind of summarize a lot in, in one sentence uh, where I say it spurred a downward spiral for her. Yeah, um, right. But yeah, so she was someone who 10 years ago was pulled over and she had uh, meth in her car. And so she went to jail and stuck in, in jail for a few weeks. And in that time, she lost her housing and she lost her access to a car. Then she took the plea, pleading to a felony drug possession charge, which should be mentioned today, she wouldn't have been charged with that because because of the Blake decision last year, the simple drug possession charge was unconstitutional, ruled unconstitutional. Right, right. So anyways, so she took the plea for felony and then after that was basically released into homelessness and you know was staying with friends and trying to get her life together but but that's hard once you have a felony conviction and she you know couldn't get financial aid uh she was a wsu student um but couldn't go back to school because she couldn't get financial aid because of her felony she says so the downward spiral kind of was continuing then and she was still in an addiction crisis and going through mental health issues she recently lost her grandmother before the arrest, she, I'm guessing she was really close with her grandmother. And mm-hmm. had she had sort of sus- substance abuse issues before? Was it exacerbated by the loss of the grandmother and the stress of, you know, all that? Or You know, I didn't ask uh, too much about, you know, what happened before. I, I just, you know, what she said was, you know, is sort of um, the loss of her grandmother that triggered a lot of that, whether she had those issues before or not. And, and she had previous encounters with law enforcement, not, you know, a felony drug possession charge. Um, she was, you know, picked up for driving with a suspended license, which as, you know, people who study these things know that that alone can trigger a cycle of going in and out of jail. Um, right, you know. right. And so she, um, after she was released, uh, from jail and she pleaded guilty kind of feeling pressure to do so then you know she was arrested a few months later and um and then after that she was put in prison she was let out in july of 2014 and ever since then you know she has successfully kind of you know rebuilt her life and now she's an advocate for people who are in prison and she does a lot of great work so i mean this is a story that we've heard a lot from various advocates we've talked to on the show bail project a way to justice 
the interesting detail here, and it sort of is the catalyst for your story, is that she was caught in a Soton County and as sort of piecemeal as some of the pretrial stuff and just, you know, diversionary programs are in Spokane County, they don't even exist in a Soton County. It's, mm-hmm. you know, that's what is it? The kind of the southeast corner of the state, super small. It's a long ways away from almost everything. And so in addition to, you know, the stuff that you see happening with our criminal legal system in Spokane, there were just even fewer options for her down there. Mm-hmm. And so how does that play out on like a county by county basis around here? Like what as you started digging into the patchwork of pretrial services that are offered, what did you find? I mentioned in the story that there was a pretrial task force that the legislature commissioned to look at this a little bit. And so they... That was 2019? 2019, yes. They kind of did a survey of, you know, it's not just each county, but each municipal court and and things like that. And they had a map of, uh, I think it was, you know, 21 counties that do have pretrial services. Um, but even then, you know, I, I was doing some work after that, you know, reporting on this story, trying to contact those places. And so, so Soton County was one that was identified as having pretrial services in that oh, report. Wow. But then when I we asked about that, they said, well, we don't have that anymore because it was staffed by one person and um, that person's left. So I think that really kind of just shows the resources needed. It, it's a lot of these counties don't have the resources or they're not willing to you know, devote a staff person and a really small government to man this. And then, you know, it's hard to keep them in that position. Two th- well, two things. So I took a note uh, that I was going to ask you about a little bit later on, but since you already mentioned it, 21 counties had no pretrial service programs as of 2019. There's only 39 counties in Washington. So mm-hmm. more than 50 percent. And then your subsequent reporting was like the ones that even sort of were on the list as having pretrial services actually maybe don't like a mm-hmm. Soton because like the one lady who was working yeah. the pretrial service program like quit or retired or something. Yeah. In the case of somebody like Amber, who, you know, never had a felony run in with the law, done things that I think we've all done in our lives. And one of the things that, like, I try to think about when I'm trying to reframe the pervasive sort of like law and order, like, you know, Dick Wolf narrative about how people end up in jail is like, I think back to the stuff that I did when I was a kid. I've never done meth, but I've like had illegal substances in a car that I was traveling in and various other things. And like there, but for the grace of God could have, you know, I could have been in that situation or if I had a less stable family situation, if I, you know, had a brain chemistry issue that sort of made me more predisposed to addictive tendencies and Mm -hmm. also had all this like family trauma like she did. Any one of those things could have, like I could be in this position. And the question then I think we need to all ask ourselves and the question your story asks is like, is that how we want to be helping people get through these like rough patches in their lives by basically locking them up pretrial and and whatever. So Mm -hmm. what did you find as you were looking like what this, this patchwork sort of it basically creates uneven justice throughout the state. So maybe you could talk about that a little bit. I mean, I was drawn to this story just because of this idea that, you know, depending on where you are comes in the justice system, it can be completely different. And so, you know, for her, she still thinks back and thinks if she had free trial services that first time, maybe things would have been totally different for her. Maybe she's not, she doesn't lose her housing. And then so she, she's not pressure to plead to felony. And, and so she's not released into homelessness or something right. like that. And so, yeah, just depending on and where you are in Washington, doesn't seem like the system is working the way it should be, where depending on like four miles away or a mile away on the boundary line, this right. kind of arbitrary thing, and then, you know, you can have a totally different outcome. So 
Well, even if she would have been able to get bail and could mm-hmm. have stayed in school, been able to you know get access to a public defender, at least even push that ball down the field a little bit further, mm-hmm. she might have been able to plead to a misdemeanor or it might have gotten dropped entirely because that happens a lot when people actually fight their charges. And then all of a sudden she has a misdemeanor on her record and not a felony. So maybe she's able to keep her student. She's able to stay in college and, and, and like you already said, doesn't lose her house. So there's research that shows that this is the case. Like the very Institute has done a study in it and it's, they found that if people are held in jail, but when they're not convicted of a crime, then they're more likely to be convicted to receive harsher sentences. And the important thing to remember here is that they haven't been convicted. I mean, they they should be presumed innocent. And right. so they're being held in jail for something that they haven't been convicted of. Um, and it's really uh, having a huge effect on them. And the difference between whether the Amber Prime or Amber, you know, like the exact clone of Amber, if she just had a little bit more money and could mm-hmm. have made bail, like same background, same charge. We're really just criminalizing poverty when you're talking about the people who end up in pretrial, detained pretrial. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So not only did I find that there were gaps in, in by geography, but, you know, it's also, as you said, people who are low income, it's a lot more difficult for them because even if there, there are pretrial services in some of these counties, a lot of them aren't paying for those services. So, you know, it's it can be drug testing, something like right. that, um, 20 bucks for a urine test or something, and they're not paying for that. That can be a barrier for for someone that they can't pay for that. And so they're not being released from jail. So even if they get OR'd or something released on their own recognizance or maybe with an ankle monitor, Mm -hmm. they might as well have an unattainable bail amount if they're going to have to pay 500 bucks for the ankle monitor. Exactly. Like you're saying 20 bucks for a drug test is unattainable for some folks. Right. And like Spokane Municipal Court, uh, a lot of people are, you know, unhoused. And so how how do you have these conditions? Like how do you have an ankle monitor or something or a right. home monitoring if they don't have a, a an home. address or a home? Yeah, right. you know? That's a really good point. I didn't really I had not thought of that, but I should have. So how did the system get like this? Because it strikes me, you know, like local control is a thing we all like in America, and you know, like thinking about our our public health system is sort of controlled county by county. We all that's we've lived through that uh, reality for the last couple of years. But there's still state funding that flows to the individual counties. Is there not like state funding for pretrial services that it's available to the counties? Are these counties just choosing not to do it? Is it something that in the case of the city of Spokane, you have to are like, are they coming up with their own money to, to cover these pretrial services rather than forcing it on the, the accused? No. So in the city of Spokane, they're a pilot program that's that they've kept going and it's grant funded. I can't remember exactly where, where that money's coming from. How we got here is, is uh, like I said, it's local control and, and there isn't state investment into paying for pre-trial services. Got so it. backing up just kind of what the law says is Washington criminal rule is any person other than those charged with capital offense should be ordered release on their personal recognizance. But judges have discretion, right. obviously. And so um, if they think that person is going to be commit a violent crime or intimidate witnesses, not appear at court, they can keep them in jail or, or do something else. Judges have always had to weigh this. And so pre-trial detention has always been pretty common. And it's really just about the fear that someone's going to go out and commit another crime. Right. You know, that, and so law enforcement, you know, if, if there's a headline out there that someone was released um, from jail and then they went and committed the same crime, you know, that, that might make headlines. That's not going to make uh, law enforcement happy. Yeah, right. You right. know, and so that's sort of the, the reasoning behind a lot of, of this, but, uh, as judges have pointed out, you know, they still, even when there are these pretrial services available, they still 
are determining whether someone is is violent and is a danger to the community they're still going to make those determinations with that said though at least like right now looking at a snapshot of right now in spokane (laughs) county jail at least because the dashboards like in front of me most of the people being held pre-trial right now are not violent offenders and a lot of them are misdemeanors so i don't know if i like buy that you know but it's like so we got the lack of money issue or the lack of at least state funding puts the onus on whatever the municipality is, whether it's a county or a city or something, to, to pay for those services because that's a key piece of this. Like mm-hmm. offering the service is one thing, but if they have to pay for it and they can't, then, you know, that, that can be exclusionary. Mm-hmm. Is it partially just like sort of our tough on crime ideology? Is it just the way we've always done it and we haven't really put a lens to it yet? What's, what's going on outside of the, the funding picture? And that's one of the questions I asked, uh, you know, public defender in Spokane County, who's working in a lot of these cases where uh, that he was asking for funding from the Smith Barberry Foundation um, to help his clients that are held on really small fees. You know, I thought his answer was interesting. You know, just you know, people are you know anti crime, anti criminal, and it's easier for them to understand that you know, like a criminal goes to jail and, and people think of someone who's arrested and not convicted as, as a criminal. And so it's just easier for them to understand that. I think that's some of the political reasoning f- for that. And it's, you know, really what I think is it's just a, it's a combination of that with a lack of resources. And so, mm. you know, is this small rural county, which may kind of be on the fence about this idea anyways, are they then going to like commit money into pre-trial services even though, you know, there is evidence that, you know, it can save them money. And that's what some right. of these judges and, you know, in Women County, I talked to a judge who was trying to make the case that, you know, this this will save money because, you know, going back to Amber, you know, if she doesn't go to jail again, like if she, after that first time has pretrial services and she doesn't end up in jail again, then that, you know, saves taxpayers money anyways. Right. So. Yeah. I mean, it, I do see like the bind that especially smaller rural counties are in. Cause, like these are sort of shrinking farm communities. Like the tax base from even like 20 or 30 years ago is not what it was. Fewer people live there, you know, when you have to make a choice between like being quote unquote soft on crime or like filling potholes. And again, these are like sparsely populated areas, lots of roads leading to very few houses. So like all that money has to stretch so much further. It makes even, even outside of like the, the sort of ideological piece of it, it's like, that would be a tough, I would not want to be like a, you know, like the County treasurer in a Soton County trying to make the books balance on a, you know, Mm -hmm. in a good year. So that's fascinating to me. I wanted to talk about the differences between what Spokane City and County are doing, because you, you highlight this in your story as a way of, I mean, even like we're literally sort of sharing a jurisdiction, but two different sort of entities are doing it differently. And we've talked about on the show, the the um, MacArthur grant and the JFA report and all the stuff that's happened since 2019 to try to at least jumpstart some of these pilot programs for pretrial services, diversionary services, drug court. I had read that Spokane County, it wasn't surprising that Spokane County was like in danger of losing some of that grant funding because they just aren't doing the work that the grant was funding. But I did not realize that they had like brought in a third party vendor to run the pilot program. Like whose idea was that? Was that the MacArthur Foundation or like how did that even come about? 
and the spokesman review has done some reporting on this, um, but county commissioners are, I think, supportive of this forward release program. Okay. But the MacArthur Foundation, I think the original thinking behind the money that they're giving was that it would be a third party vendor. Oh, okay. And so prosecutor, Spokane County prosecutor Larry Haskell is against that. Um, right, because, he wants to have it in house. Yeah, and it's because of liability concerns. He thinks um, it, you know, opens up lawsuits if they, you know, outsources to a third party. But really, what that means is just, um, you know, it's a difference with. So the support release program is, you know, once someone's released, they're connected with someone who, like a case manager or something, that might connect them to services. And the question is kind of whether that that would be a county employee or not. Um, yeah, I, I think recently the county commissioners were the ones that um, decided that ultimately, you know, this should be a third party. And you might not know this, but was the MacArthur Foundation wanting it to be a third party just to sort of have like a like an objective third party sort of doing the pilot program and collecting data or? I, I'm not uh, exactly sure. I, I believe that was the original intent, however. Gotcha. Okay. So do you know, like in, in concrete terms, what the third party contracting looks like? Like, are they, do they just have like their own office somewhere? And it's like, I, I don't, I, uh, to be honest, I didn't do, um, didn't look into exactly what that would look yeah, like. No, as much. You, yeah. you like covered the entire yeah. state. So I couldn't expect <laughs> you to get into details about everything, but it was, it just like struck me as really interesting and strange. So you write in your story that a person uh, quote, a person arrested for driving under the influence of alcohol in the city of Spokane which funds defendant costs for pretrial services may be released while the court pays for the costs of supervision. But that same person arrested for the same crime in another part of Spokane County would likely be on the hook for pretrial services, such as an ankle alcohol ankle monitor that can cost as much as 500 bucks per month. Those high cost services often result in low income defendants remaining behind bars, further disrupting their ability to maintain employment or housing. This is the stuff we've talked about. It also disrupts their ability to mount a defense against the charges, as we've talked about. So why is the city, why has the city decided to pay for pretrial services? Why has the county declined? And does the difference just come down to politics or are there other considerations? Yeah, so the city, again, that's through grant money. So they're, I guess, more willing to let this grant kind of the pilot program play out. And they've renewed it when asked. A municipal court judge, Mary Logan, has been instrumental in pushing for a lot of these uh, programs. So, you know, and I think they've been able to demonstrate that it does save money and and lead to good outcomes. I don't have the analysis in front of me, but that's the case that they've made to the city and the city's like, okay, yeah, well... We'll keep going. I do know that Judge Mary Logan would like a more sustainable funding solution than just having these grants and, and stuff like that and having it be a pilot program. But as far as the county, you know, a lot of the opposition's coming from the Spokane County Prosecutor's Office. Mm-hmm. And it's not for everything. I, I will say the the county, they there are certain pretrial services that, you know, like court reminders is considered a pretrial service. And right. the county does things like that. You know, with the support release program and, and other things, you know, the, the county prosecutor's office just kind of they're unsure about the accountability, um, as they call it, for people who are charged. Um, and if they're released, they with the support release program, they thought, OK, well, they can meet with this case manager and then leave. But then, you know, you can't legally if they're not convicted, impose that they seek treatment or something. You can't put someone in treatment. And so at that point, then they think it's just they're not bound to these conditions. And so what is it actually doing? I think that's the argument that they made at a county commissioner meeting about this a year ago. 
And, you know, Larry Haskell, I, I reached out to him for this story and, you know, his office is actually not resistant to this, even though, despite, you know, what the prosecutors have said in the past, but he said they're not resistant to it. He just wanted it to be in-house instead of a third party. Right. There's also other logistical, you know, like Spoken County District Court is, um, I think they have more clients and more people going through that right. than municipal court. So, you know, it's not, it's not quite as easy for them to kind of just make this change as it is for the city, I don't think. So does this include then, because municipal courts like misdemeanors and citations and stuff and superior courts like for felony. So somebody who is charged with a felony within Spokane City who then will end up at like superior court, do they, by virtue of the fact that they the the, the alleged crime happened in Spokane, do they get the service? Do they get their services paid for, or do they sort of default to the county? So uh, when I've been talking about the county, it's mostly been I've been referring to district court. Um, okay, so right. those are lower level offenses gotcha. uh, that occurred outside of the city limits. Okay, and I believe so. Superior court they have you know some pretrial services, but it's um, again these are more serious crimes. So right. yeah. Okay, got it. I mean, again, it just kind of clangs in the ears when you were mentioning like the resistance to pretrial services is they want accountability. But of course, these are people who haven't been convicted yet. So what are they what are we asking them to be accountable for if they haven't had their due process? Mm Data is always such a problem. But have you were you able even anecdotally to talk to folks who have had either data on the effectiveness or the like comparing the, the city approach and the county approach, either qualitative or quantitative? Like, does it seem like it's working at the city? Yeah, I mean, I, I think comparing the city to the, to the county, that I think that would be difficult just because it might be a different sort of population and the other factors there. I know, I do know, like I mentioned earlier, you know, Judge Mary Logan, she's presented some of the, the data for the city and sh- shown that, you know, it's effective and it's reducing jail costs and, and things like that. And, um, you know, I, I think a lot of this data is hard hard to come by. And, you know, I, I think part of the desire f- with this MacArthur grant with the county is is to get it going and then actually look at this and see how it worked. Mm-hmm. You know, it just hasn't really started yet. So so during COVID, we got sort of a, a forced look at what like letting a bunch of people out of jail looks like a lot of different places. We got down to about 50% of our average or 60% of our average daily population down from like roughly a thousand down to like five or 600. And they've gone up a bit since then, but it's still a lot lower than pre-pandemic. Despite that, we're still hovering at like 70% pre-trial. I mean, that means that like unconvicted people were kept in jail while people who you know, had been convicted of something where let go to maintain the same ratio, you know, like, do you have a sense of why we didn't just sort of like just focus on letting a bunch of pretrial folks out? You know, I honestly, I think it's a lot of the same reasons we've talked about just, you know, the political desire to, to do that, I think, isn't there, you know, in, in Spokane County, you know, King County, they stopped pretty much jailing people for misdemeanors. You know, I think the advocates that I talked to for, you know, criminal justice reform have pointed to that as you know, like, look, you know, this wasn't the end of the world when this happened, although there's still, you know, debate there because crime overall has risen a little bit in the last few years, just kind of in line with trends across country. And so, you know, the ACLU, the person I talked to, Jamie Hawk, she's looking into that. Um, She wants to do a a study just on King County. And so what was the effect of letting people out uh, or not jailing them for misdemeanors? Um, Again, though, you know, I think that I don't know how much that speaks directly to 
the pretrial services because you know not jailing right. someone at all versus giving them services you know referring them to treatment or, or have something like that is a little di- bit di- different for sure yeah. so i mean one of the last big stories i wrote for the inlander like a decade ago was about smart justice which was now city council president begs big initiative to start talking about this stuff back then lawyers i talked to judges advocates even Sheriff Knesevich was like at least on the record theoretically supportive of it. And yet a decade later, we're still, like you just said, like the, even the MacArthur thing hasn't really started yet. Do you have a sense of like what the institutional inertia around this is about? Is it just that like we're so, you know, reluctant to do anything that could be perceived as soft on crime or funding or? Yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, a mix of of both, yeah, as we kind of just talked about, Spokane was supposed to sort of be an example, as I kind of mentioned in the story, for the rest of the state to kind of uh, look at some of these things. So statewide, lawmakers have been trying to find, uh, you know, a good model for for these type of reform efforts, and Spokane was supposed to be that. And, and you know, it, it has been talked about for, you know, a decade plus, like you said, um, you know, I've read your articles about it at the Inlander <laughs> and, and then, you know, then through the years at the Inlander, even, you know, people have been uh, writing about this kind of thing and um, right. it's just slow moving and, and it's always sort of the same debate is like, how do you balance public safety with protecting someone's right to not be uh, imprisoned without a conviction? That's always a debate that we're going to have. It's going to move in different directions and, and it's just been a little slow going, I think. I think we've been kind of dancing around this, but the most obvious solution to this patchwork, at least not for the ideology piece, but certainly for the funding piece, would be to create like statewide standards and statewide funding. Kind of one of the most surprising things about your report was that it doesn't seem like the our state legislatures are really, this is not a priority for everybody, anybody except maybe Roger Goodman, who's a representative from Bellevue? I, I believe so, yeah. And he was a he was a f- attorney as well. That, that was surprising to me too, looking into the story, because, you know, you'd think Washington state would be, you know, sort of a leader on, on uh, some of these smart justice reform efforts. On this one, at least they're not. And so in 2017, they actually commissioned that pretrial task from report, which was completed in 2019. And it didn't really make waves across the state like it was you know there weren't many news stories about it at the time when it came out you know i asked roger goodman about that and and why that was and you know his theory was you know didn't really have strong recommendations like you see in these other states like they've just kind of you know reformed their entire entire bail system like new jersey and california you know some of the other states have just totally tried to have structural change and um, a uniform statewide office uh, that will deliver pretrial services and yeah, I think you, I don't know if it was Goodman or somebody else, but you quoted saying the the recommendations were a little anemic. That's why, yeah, that was Goodman, I believe. Um, I think the recommendations, you know, they were mostly, you know, that that they should be funded, you know, that pretrial services should be funded by each county. It's like I think people might agree with that, but like not many counties are looking that at that report and saying, oh, well, we have to do this now. You know, there right. isn't. You know, I know Roger Goodman. I, I don't think he's the only lawmaker, but he has been one of the leaders trying to understand this more. He's traveling to other states, trying to look at models that work. Yeah, I just, you know, it is sort of a mystery that it hasn't been a priority for Washington when it, you know, Washington has been a leader on on other things. You know, even now, I think it's a few years away from even get, getting to a point where it's seriously discussed in the legislature. Um, and the other thing is Goodman, he was kind of saying that there isn't, 
uniform agreement on among judges on this issue. You know, while the task force report was being completed, um, he said he saw a lot of judges kind of disagreeing with each other on, on what works. So it's a tricky issue and there's a lot of debate and I think there isn't a c- consensus on the best way to do it right now. And you know, maybe that's the reason that nothing's really been done from a statewide perspective. The criminal legal system is it's sort of an interesting beast because for something like public health, there's sort of like a professional class that's outside of politics or can be outside of politics that can agree on best practices. And I guess that that exists here too, but it feels like the people who get to weigh in on these things are a lot of judges are, they're not partisan positions, but these are still elected positions. You've got to wonder how much politics, personal preference, and just personal anecdotal feelings about what they've seen in their specific courtroom contributes to this kind of cacophony and like lack of alignment. Yeah, it's one of those things where there's this opposing ideas of, well, the stats say one thing, but, you know, someone in a courtroom might see the same person, you know, who's released from jail coming back over and over again. And, you know, that one anecdote kind of is magnified a little bit um, and becomes, well, you know, these pretrial services may not work for that one person. And so I think that definitely plays into it, you know, like it does a lot of things, like a a powerful anecdote is a lot of times can outweigh the the stats that say, well, this is the best practice. I was going to ask about um, ending cash bail, the states that have done that, but it feels like we're so far off from that. I kind of like, let's do the the more proximate thing first. So of those states that have created sort of like a statewide comprehensive pretrial service package, I'm guessing these same sorts of hangups exist everywhere. It's not like Washington specific. And especially given that we're relatively progressive, you would think that we would maybe have less barriers than other places. So of the places that have been able to successfully implement like statewide uniform pretrial services, how did they break through? Do they just pass a law and say, deal with it? Or like, how did that work? Yeah, I, I don't know, you know, the political forces in, in like, you know, New Jersey that, <laughs> uh, you know, exactly allowed this to happen. Um, I, I do. I know more about kind of the results of it. You know, yeah. I, there was the same debates as, as there are now in, in Washington with this, you know, the concerns about public safety. And so it was something that was studied, which how is this working out? And they found at least one of the first studies into New Jersey that the crime rate didn't wasn't affected drastically yeah. and, and people were out of jail, weren't being held pretrial um, as much, which was kind of what they were going for. So right. Yakima, I mentioned in the article, did a similar thing and, and found similar results. So that's kind of what we've seen so far in these other places that have done that. That's sort of been the result. And really, that's the point, right? It's like, I mean, you would hope that crime would also go down because everything you're trying to do in the system is trying to sort of make you know, like lifestyle crimes and stuff go down. But even staying the same, that's a win because then you, you, you've you proven out that you can incarcerate fewer people, disrupt fewer people's lives and not just the life of the person who's accused, but also their families. Like, you know, especially if we're talking about poor folks, it's like maybe they're living in multi-generational homes. And stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Fewer people being in jail is generally a good thing i'd, I'd say <laughs> I, I guess like the thing that maybe and this is where we can close and we can just chat about um journalism stuff in general like we're talking about the way a state and then the smaller jurisdictions and municipalities sort of govern and enforce what is like a constitutional right it's like the right to due process the right to equal protection under the law there's no way to sort of even pretend that somebody in 
the Soton County is getting, you know, without any pretrial services, getting the same sort of protection that somebody in like Spokane City. Can we really even have equal protection under the law until we get like a statewide thing? And that might be asking for too much opinion or, or whoever you talk to, like you might not want to like go on the record with an opinion about that. But like, how do you think about that as you're reporting out the story? Yeah, you're right. I mean, I don't want to advocate too much as in my position as a journalist, but I think that that is the central question that I was approaching the story with was logically you, you want a system where you're going to receive similar outcomes for the same crime for, if you're the same person, no matter where you are. And, you know, that's obviously not happening now. And so I think it's everyone's goal for that to happen. What, how that happens, I think is, you know, the question is, I don't think has been answered yet. And there's a lot of debate over that. So yeah, I mean, the system right now is not providing, you know, equal protection under the law, just if you compare not only by geography, but based on how much money you have. This, This story was the first in a series that you and Investigate West are doing called Justice by Geography. What's up next? So I'm working on a story about a few stories, actually, one on legal financial obligations. You know, another story in the series is looking at protection orders. And it's not only depending on the county or the court, just the judge, you know, because they have so much discretion over whether to grant like a domestic violence protection order, restraining order, something like that. And so I'm doing a, a story looking at, you know, which judges are approving or denying those the most. And that's as far as I've got re- reporting, just kind of the idea and, and requesting records. And then also just kind of post-conviction uh, monitoring, you know, this, this story was pretrial services, but a lot right. of these disparities exist post-conviction as well, especially, you know, with home monitoring and stuff like that. So. Right. So you worked at the Inlander for how long? Uh, six years. I started in 2016, January 2016. And left yeah in december yeah okay i think it was your first byline at investigate west in like february january i think it was i think it was probably february yeah. or january i think there it might have been january i can't remember you did a lot of investigative work at the inlander but you know there's also just like incremental weekly reporting and stuff and special sections and yeah for the health mag and best stuff. of yeah <laughs> best of <laughs> The variety can be fun. It can also be pretty overwhelming. That's sort of one of the things that we're thinking about here is like workload and, and you know, Investigate West is kind of like us and that you you don't have an ad stack to write, you know, put articles next to so you don't have to like the weekly grind isn't doesn't have to be a piece of it. So like, what was that like for you just trying to sort of manage your weekly budget while also doing these bigger projects? You know, I was always wanting to do the bigger investigative projects at the end and, and compared to most places, they allow you to do that. And it helps to be a weekly and, and not daily. Um, although there are, as you said, there are still a lot of times these daily non-news items that you have to write. Honestly, I a lot of time enjoyed that um, because it allowed you to write and, you know, stretch your writing muscles in different ways Bar and have guy. fun with it. Yeah. 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 And I think ultimately it uh, really helps you grow as, as a writer because you can be really versatile with the stories that you choose to do. The deadlines, you know, what's appealing about Investigate West is being able to focus on, you know, investigative stories, only only those stories. You know, sometimes I, I do miss, you know, I want to write like a fun uh, best of cap about my favorite restaurant or something, but um, <laughs> it's different. And, you know, there's good and, and bad things about, you know, writing for you know, having daily tasks. The other thing I'll say is like, you know, if you're writing the more incremental coverage that you write or report on, that actually does help you get oh, investigative sure. stories. Yeah. You know, if I'm, if 
you know, I covered education most of my time at the Inlander and, you know, being at those meetings, the school board meetings every week, that really helps you to have story ideas or, or know exactly what's happening and the underlying forces behind uh, the news in a way that, you know, sort of just surveying, you know, from across the state, you might not see the same things. Right. You understand what's going on in Spokane County because you've been covering it for mm-hmm. six years better than you do like Yakima County or something. Yeah. 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 Just by virtue of living it. So we're not going to see a review of your review of the Paul McCartney concert in Investigate West then is what I'm hearing you say. No. You're not going yeah. to pivot to arts coverage? Probably not. No. <laughs> it's a great concert though. So, you know, I like, I feel like this is a story that I could have imagined being in the Inlander, but obviously there's a different sort of geographic scope at Investigate West. So what is that sort of different geographical focus going to allow you to report on that you've always wanted to dig in on? I think even at the Inlander, I was always drawn to more statewide accountability stories, you know, I've stories on mental health system and state education system and stuff like that. And so I, I think Investigate West will allow me to do more of that than before. But I also think there is room for statewide reporting that does have more of a perspective on Eastern Washington, Central Washington. I think that is always an area that uh, West Side Papers are looking at, and I think it's it's undercovered. And, you know, there's a lot of really interesting things happening here. And so, yeah, I, I am excited about that. You know, I, I wasn't, I'm not looking at this like, well, now I need to know everything about um, what's happening in Seattle, right. I can still kind of look at these stories from um, Eastern Washington perspective. Yeah. And, it, and it's valuable too, right? Like you would expect the Times to do a big story about pretrial services around King County or Snohomish or, you know, even down into Pierce, like, you mm-hmm. know, uh, Tacoma, but you're right. Like those outlets don't really get over here that much. And so mm-hmm. for listeners of this podcast, it's cool to know that like Wilson is here in Spokane. You followed Jacob Fries, who's the old managing editor of the Inlander, who's now the executive director of Investigate West. So there's like, we've got a little pod of investigative journalism happening in Spokane on behalf of kind of a, most of the reporting's about Washington, but you do Pacific Northwest? It's uh, Pacific Northwest. And right now, most of my reporting has been on Washington because that's what I know. Um, yeah. But, you know, I'm, I'm doing a story uh, where I'm going to Montana uh, in a few weeks, hopefully. Cool. And, you know, I think it's Pacific Northwest. Uh, you know, it's we're based in Seattle, but, um, you know, we have room to branch out a little bit beyond that. I was going to ask you if you were going to do a fear and loathing to Southern Oregon, but it sounds like you're doing fear <laughs> and loathing to Missoula. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. I'm, I don't want to reveal too much about the story yet, but, um, okay. yeah. <laughs> cool. You mentioned to me when we were scheduling this that you were working on a big 6,000 word piece. Is this one of the geography injustice stories or something it's, else? I, I discovered it actually working on this this story, but it's about someone who in municipal court waived his attorney and just sort of said, just put me in jail. He was homeless, uh, is homeless. And so the story is just kind of exploring what leads someone to make that choice. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's other examples of this and it's more common than I think people realize where people are just choosing to go to jail for shelter um, because maybe they're resistant to shelters. You know, they don't like being a big crowd of people or something. And so they're sort of just living on the streets. And then when it gets really cold, they're, they are fine with just being in jail. So um, it's exploring that. And, and I got to spend some time with, with him and understand who he is and kind of what's driving him uh, his decision there. So yeah. Was it, is that in Spokane or is that somewhere else? He was in Spokane. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I turned it in at 6,000 words. Just going through the editing process now. It might be cut down significantly, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the red pens out. 
Well, that's. Do you have a sense of when that's going to drop? You know, I, I actually don't know. So it, the the process is a little different with Investigate West, um, where you know we don't exactly have deadlines, um, yeah. and so I finish the story and um, and then we like to partner with other publications and who will run our stuff. So yeah. um, this one, you know, we'll kind of shop it around, I think. And oh, cool. hopefully we'll have some takers. So Yeah. Awesome. Thinking about like a city like Spokane and just like the, the, the mix of sort of journalistic offerings is something we've been thinking about a lot as we're trying to figure out exactly how range fits in. Like, and then, you know, Bill Moreland passing recently, just this like giant of investigative journalism across the West. And we were lucky enough to have him in Spokane. Like it feels like more important than ever. It's always been important, I guess, but like to just have like a mix, right? Like if you're not going to be the person doing the daily reporting, you're going to rely on daily reporting to sort of keep track. Like you were saying, like if you're not the person at the school board meeting every single week, you're going to be relying on a, a reporter at the spokesman or the inlander to, to sort of keep track of that stuff. And so, but then at the same time, that can be a real impediment to doing the big investigative stuff. And so has your perspective on news or just any of this stuff or your career as a writer or just sort of the mix of different focuses in journalism and maybe specifically in, in a county like Spokane shifted in the few months you've been at Investigate West? Maybe a little bit. Uh, I, I think it's reminding me of our, our friend Daniel Walters. Uh, he wrote recently about this issue for the Inlander, I think, where I think his argument was, you know, there should be more journalism that kind of covers these, those, you know, those weekly meetings. Uh, you know, I think he's called it like mediocre journalism. You know, it's not, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's not, you know, striving for these big investigative pieces um, all the time. It's kind of doing the more mundane. And I think I agree with that, you know, it's super valuable to have someone covering Spokane Valley regularly. And, and, you know, the spokesman review has, uh, you know, I think they're covering a lot of bases. It's just, you know, I, I've seen at the Inlander, the new staff went down a little bit, you know, it went from like four. And then recently there's been two people not helped by me leaving the Inlander, but, and it's just harder to keep tabs and all those things. So, you know, we, we see that's kind of the effect of losing, you know, when you, you see across the country, these daily papers are losing reporters, you know, even the spokesman review, their, their staff used to be much bigger than it is oh, so much now. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. so maybe you don't have someone at every county commission meeting. I, I remember a few years ago, you might remember this too, the county commission kind of hid something on their agenda. It wasn't on their agenda. And the only way that someone knew about it was because there was one person in that room and it was spokesman review reporter yeah and otherwise no one would know and I, I always just think about how often that's happening because right you know there's fewer people going to these meetings um there's fewer people dedicated to um, a certain commission or a certain aspect of government that's, that's manifestly true and obviously true and then even thinking about what's that like in every single courtroom in spokane right like we used to have court reporters that doesn't really happen anymore and mm -hmm. it's not and it wasn't just for like the fake german heiress like the big like scandals or like the you know the johnny depp amber heard court thing it was like people were just court reporters who would go report on interesting cases and we don't have that either so like we, there's like just a, a these big gaps in what we know about the way our public government functions and stuff mm -hmm. yeah and i always think about that you know just how much i don't know as a journalist because I'm not there all the time. Yeah. Um, and I always think that there's so much I'm missing because if I just was at the courthouse for a day, like what would I find? You know? Yeah, there was, um, I guess Serial did like a season in Cuyahoga County and that's Cleveland, right? I think. And then I think the Marshall Project just did a huge like data 
thing on Cuyahoga. On the one hand, it's like frustrating that our public entities don't want to do the work to give us the like examination of the data of the county court system in a way that's like usable by journalists or just normal people. But it's also a bummer. The journalism infrastructure doesn't exist anymore. Just the market doesn't, you know, allow us to do that sort of deep, deep stuff. I mean, to your point about the spokesman and, and Bill Moreland, it was like the fact that there used to be like, you know, a newsroom of like, what, like 60 people mm-hmm. was what allowed somebody like Bill to go take weeks, you know, and like fly helicopters around eastern Oklahoma after the um, McVeigh bombings and and just understand white supremacy in North Idaho and in Eastern Washington as well as he did. Yeah. That's sort of the effect of, again, of these, you know, dwindling newsrooms is, all right, so you have a few people that spokesman review and if there's enough still to cover each beat, even there's not as many people, there's not like an investigations team solely focused on these things. That's sort of where I think Investigate West can help fill some of those gaps a little bit um, and kind of partner with these other newsrooms to you know produce investigative work that's statewide focus or um, locally focused. Yeah. And I think like if we can get into into more of like a collaborative mindset, you know, because like there's yeah. so much like it's such a competitive or, you know, not always, but like there was a tendency historically for papers who are sort of covering the same town to be pretty competitive with each other. And I think that persisted after in this austerity time right and so there has there's not a lot of collaboration going on but i do think that like you're saying with different sort of models maybe like range certainly like investigate west and just people i feel like there's you know just been a sea change in journalism and the people that are sort of thinking about journalism at like the meta level being like if we don't have the institutions we used to have how can the institutions that remain sort of work together to get back somewhere close to where we were alone or Mm -hmm. something that's interesting. You know, I, I think I've noticed that change in thinking a little bit. You know, maybe it's just my own personal change in thinking. I think when yeah. I started out, I was way more competitive with people that were, you know, on my beat, you know, on a competing <laughs> sure. paper. And yeah. But now I, I think there's more of a feeling of collaboration where, you know, we're all journalism is a tough industry and we're all kind of into this to get together because we care about our communities. And, and so when someone else has a really good scoop, I'm, you know, I, I think in Spokane, I've, I've seen you know, other journalists be less jealous or envious of, of that kind of thing. And more like, we're happy that this news got out there, you know? Yeah. yeah. So. I had a conversation with Daniel where we, I think we were talking about the Christchurch stuff down in Moscow and how it hasn't really been covered much locally. Mm-hmm. And that one big piece that was a, done a few months ago was like a Ohio based HuffPo religion writer. And I was sort of just l- lamenting that on Twitter and we eventually took it to DM. So we didn't like get into a, like <laughs> a little spat uh, mm-hmm. in public, but we were just having this conversation about like the collaboration stuff's there too. But, but because there's just so few staff to go around, he was like, I kind of feel like sometimes if somebody beats me to a topic, it's just like, okay, that's Kip's topic now, or it's, that's Wilson's topic. Now I'm mm-hmm. just going to back off of it. On the one hand, that's maybe a little collegial, but it also it like, you know, there's a perspective and there's sources that each of us have that, or that Daniel has that you might not have. And yeah, so some maybe somewhere in the middle where it's like, let's not just like give up on something just because you got scooped, but also maybe not be so competitive where you're just like at each other's throats all the time. Yeah, ideally there is some middle ground because it is good to be competitive because as you said, maybe I'll approach a story differently than um, a, a different outlet would. Or if I'm really pushing to get the scoop on this huge story, then maybe I will versus 
you know, the person who had it first, you know, if yeah. I'm just giving up on it, then maybe there is something missing there. So yeah, I agree that there's, there should be some healthy competitiveness there with other outlets. Like just thinking about the, the Shea in Ukraine story, we had a piece of Seattle times, obviously sort of broke first and was like four hours from publishing. I was so mad that they, they got the scoop, but then Daniel had a piece a couple of days later and like, and then Eli just happened to be Eli, uh, Frankovich from the spokesman just happened to be in Poland because mm-hmm. he got kicked out of Ukraine or told to told to leave Ukraine and get kicked out. <laughs> I was super happy that it became a national story. Like Talking Points Memo picked it up. A lot of people picked it up. Mm-hmm. And looking at the coverage, it was like it was the local reporters in Spokane that really got it better than anybody else did. And that's, I think that, that demonstrates the value of like three or four different people, like each with their own. There's like the angle we all bring to any given story. It's like what what captivates me about a story is different than you and, mm-hmm. and, and Daniel. So you've got that. And then you also have like, everybody has their own individual sources, which that are either like cultivated over years or people it's just like randomly, you just get a call one day and somebody like wants to talk and they're ca- talking to you because of you work at the Inlander or you work at range or you work at investigate West. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It just creates like a tapestry. If you have the time and energy to like read multiple pieces, it's like, oh, wow, I, I understand this so much more deeply than if I would have just read that Seattle Times story and left it at that. Yeah. And I think, you know, for a big story like that, a lot of times, you know, I remember at the end, our, our instinct was like, well, you know, spokesman broke it. So, or Seattle Times broke it. So we're not going to touch it because what are we going to add? Even if I, for something like that, I think even if you're not adding a ton, it's still worth doing because yeah. it's reaching a different audience you know maybe there are people who aren't reading this books and or you know not reading seattle times i, I think those stories still de- deserve something from us even just and then and then maybe that leads to you know a, breaking another story if someone reads that story and they're like oh well i have more information for you I and mean, there's so many of my stories come from people just you know giving me tips or calling because totally. they saw something else i wrote so yeah. awesome man well what else do you have on the horizon or what are you excited about for 2022 as you settle into this job yeah i mean it's i got a, a lot of big stories that i'm working on sort of in the background it's it's hard to juggle all of those um <laughs> i'm looking into eastern and western state hospitals a little bit oh, cool. and this week i'm trying to finish, finish up a story on damage deposits and um sort of how they can leave tenants with debt that impedes their ability to get another apartment or something. Yeah, I, I'm excited. I'm, you know, after a few months, I investigate West and sort of getting the swing of the workflow a little bit and working from home and managing all these different projects. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm incredibly excited. So how do you and Jake do your editorial meetings? Like, do you just call in or do you like meet at a coffee shop? How does it even work? It started, I just go over to his house and sit at his <laughs> uh, kitchen island and yeah. <laughs> and with our laptops out. And, and then we started meeting at a coffee shop and we sort of switch and then we'll Zoom. But it's uh, <laughs> right now, it's just, it's kind of like, feels like the two of us against the world a little bit. So yeah. <laughs> that somehow that's a good feeling. As we're sort of turning range into an actual newsroom, well, I think one of the things that I maybe took for granted because I didn't know anything else was just like what it's like to be in the room with a bunch of journalists talking about this stuff and how powerful that is mm-hmm. and, and what comes of that. Journalism really is a team sport mm-hmm. and uh, it's it's really cool to like be in rooms like this and talking with people like you. So I, I really appreciate your time, man. I'm happy you had me and I love talking about my story. So um, yeah, thanks. Thanks again to Wilson for coming on the pod. Thanks to Val Ozier, who in addition to her normal producing responsibilities this week also recorded this episode for us. I'm telling you guys, it takes a village. Also, as always, Connor Bacon for the lightning fast edits of the interview. 
fastest hands in the game, bar none. Little pro tip for you podcasters out there, what you want to do is get yourself an editor who has a background in like semi-competitive gaming. Just the clicks, the mouse clicks per second and the precision, just chef's kiss. Last plug, go read Wilson's story, rangemedia.co. Look for Justice by Geography. That's the story. If you can afford it, kick us some support while you're at it. When you're done there, make sure to keep clicking all the way through to Investigate West, learn a little bit more about them, sign up for their newsletter, and kick them some support if you can afford it. And the only other thing I need from you right now, and I mean this, is just have a great weekend. Actually, week. <laughs> I'm gonna. We got this thing out with enough week left in the week that I can say have a good week. So have a good week. See you next time. Bye.